Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. All right, so we, uh, we're, we're plugging through our, our series here on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we are on the Sixth Commandment. And we're going to put it up on the screen here, Exodus twenty thirteen. Here we go. You shall not murder. It's a very short verse. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's two words uh, translated as just not murder. Not murder. So that, that is our text today. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't done that. See you later, pastor. I'm out. I got it. I got that one down. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, as you, you heard when, when Lisa read, Jesus isn't going to give us that. <laughs> he isn't going to give us that. And, and, and just as, as an aside, uh, we, we've talked about this in the last six weeks, and, and we've talked about the, the faulty understanding that sometimes people think that Old Testament is just uh, it's harsh and, and it's law, and then you get to the new and it's all grace. But, but when you look at the Ten Commandments, Jesus basically takes them and just says, you, you thought it was this, but, but it's actually a lot more than, than that. He gets to the heart of the matter. Um, you shall not murder is the text today. And, and you might, if you're a KJV uh, person or were a KJV person at, at any point, that's the King James Version uh, um, translation of the Bible, it, it is going to say you shall not kill. Um, I don't think that's a really good translation. Uh, there is many Hebrew words for the word kill, but the word ratzah um, is actually murder. It, it, it packs this idea of, uh, of intentionality in killing and, and anger and uh, um, just planning. Um, so so it's, it's different than, than kill. Uh, and we're going to look, look at a few quotes before we get going. J. Warner Wallace, he, he quotes from his home state of California's penal code. And, and the California penal code that he quotes from says this, murder is the unlawful killing of a human being or a fetus with malice aforethought. That word is not afterthought, it's Afterthought, it's planning premeditation. And Wallace goes on to say, malice is a form of evil that separates murder from killing. So when we look at thou shall not murder today, let's just take right, right away off the table, like the killing of animals, the killing of, oh, today you got to say it, plants, and, and killing of, of anything. That, that is not what this command is uh, talking about. This command um, is talking about murder, the murder of a human being. Uh, Ashfin Ziafat says this, 
of the word that's used here for murder. Of its 47 uses in the Old Testament, this verb is never used to describe killing in war, nor is it thought to apply to slaughtering animals or defending one's home from invasion. So again, this word murder here that we're looking at is not killing. We need to just start and and separate that right away. We are not talking about war. We're not talking about the killing of animals. We're talking about murder. Um, If you read the the Old Testament, the law is given in in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And then if you keep reading, uh, what happens in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is just Moses unpacks, hey, what does that that look like? What do do I mean by, hey, thou shall not murder? What did God mean? And and it just gets unpacked. For instance, Exodus 22, 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall shall be no blood guilt for him. So so this is Moses saying, okay, let's talk about what murder means. If someone is breaking into your home, and you have to defend yourself and you kill them. That, that's not murder. That's not what we're talking about. And there's many examples here. If you, you want to read it, I, I would just suggest read Exodus 20, 21, 22, and you, you'll see them. Um, but blood guilt, you can have the guilt of, of murder on you for negligence in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, 8. We've, we've looked at this verse here in the last few months. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone shall fall from it. So he's basically saying put a fence around your roof. They used to hang out on the roofs. We kind of do the same thing today. If you have a pool, you're required to have a fence. Um, but Moses is saying here, hey, you, you could be guilty of the sixth commandment if you're operating in negligence. And that should bring our minds today to maybe drinking um, well and driving well intoxicated or driving and texting. Like that's negligence. You might not have planned um, to, to kill in that um, way, but it's a negligence that puts human life at risk. When you read the Bible, you cannot escape the value that God places on human life. You just can't escape it. It is everywhere. Um, And to unlawfully take life, to play careless with human life, God requires nothing short of life for life. Okay? The question is why? Why is that the case? Why is human life so valuable? If we were to take our, our culture's view um, that, that we've evolved and that, that we're all um, this form of stardust that's evolved over uh, millions of years, there, you can't account for the why human life is so valuable. Oh yeah, it's within every human being. Every human being knows that other human beings are valuable and that there's dignity 
um, to humans, but you, you can't get there from the current cultural world view. It does not adequately account for the why human life is so valuable. And we, we have to just take a pause here and, and, and make this connection. Suicide rates among teens are higher than they've ever been. Depression is at an all-time high. Anxiety is at an all-time high. The general anger and hate in the culture that we live in is at probably an all-time high. It connects to what we have been teaching um, our children and teaching. And I say we, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking the greater culture, what we have been teaching about human life. So before we get into the, the commandment, we have to look at the why. So let's go to Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Brothers and sisters, this is the only explanation for why human life is valuable. God has created you and every other human being alive on this planet in his image and his likeness. Human beings are the things in this world most like the creator. Say that again. Human beings are the things in this world most like God. Nothing else has been created in, in the image and likeness of God, only people. People carry with them a dignity, and that's because they are made in the image and likeness of God. So much so that God says, if you take a human life, you will give your life for it. Let's go to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Right? So he's saying, hey, if you kill, if you murder another human being and take unlawfully a human life, you deserve to die. And you deserve to die because that person who you just took their life, they were made in the image and likeness of God. Brothers and sisters, we live in exciting times. Maybe you don't think about it like that. Maybe you think, oh, these are crazy times. But we should not be scared. We should not be nervous. We have the truth. We know the God who is sovereign over everything, and we have the truth. As we think about the times that we live in, um, over the last probably thousand years, there's been specific periods of, of history where there was a question that defined that time in history. And, and often it was connected to the church. So to give you a few examples, um, at the time of the Reformation, the question was, how does man, woman, man, sinful man, sinful woman, become right with God? 
It was the gospel. It was justification. And that question rose to the the forefront. And that was what the church and the culture were dealing with. A few hundred years later, the question was, is this book, this book that we read from every, every Sunday, is it the actual words of God? Or is it just a messy book of, that man wrote? Is the Bible inspired? And that question rose to the, to the fore. But the question of our day is, is undoubtedly, what does it mean to be a human being? And that's not just for the world. It's in the church right now. The church is, is wrestling with it. What does it mean to be human? Think about all the issues of our day. We've got life in the womb, sexuality, gender, euthanasia, pronouns, hormone therapy, transhumanism, AI, artificial intelligence. Every one of the major issues of our day come down to what is a human being? What is life? So I would just ask you the question this morning, Christian, do you know that you have a truth that the world is groping in the dark to find? You were made in the image and likeness of God Therefore, all human beings are valuable from the least to the, to, from the youngest to the oldest. All human life is valuable. Think about for a moment the debates that are raging, and, and maybe you're up on this, maybe you're not, but assisted suicide. When somebody gets to a point where they're too old and, and they're not producing in, in culture anymore and... Um, do we just take them out? Are we going into the womb? I don't want the baby, um, so we're, we're going to take the, the life of the baby. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is, the one, is one who considers the helpless. The Lord will save him on a day of trouble. So as we again look at the sixth commandment, this is far, far beyond don't murder. This goes, the, you got to do the, the inverse. Well, what's the inverse of don't murder? It is that all human life is valuable. All human life is val- valuable. And then we're going to see where Jesus takes it, um, which he's going to take it to anger. Kevin DeYoung says this of the sixth commandment, every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents are precious. Even when they don't remember because they are suffering dementia, they were still made in the image of God. Nonverbal children or parents, those in a wheelchair, and those who are completely dependent upon others or doctors are precious. All of life matters to God. Defend, honor, and give thanks for life. Yours, your children's, and your parents. The sixth commandment means to protect it. So when we look again at the the sixth commandment, it is about the value and the dignity of all human life. But as we heard in, in the New Testament reading, Jesus even takes it beyond that. 
And we got to do a little work. Okay, how do we get from valuing human life? And, and okay, I get that, Pastor, and I get don't murder, but now you're going to, to anger. How, how do you get there? What's the connection? We're going we're gonna to look at that here. As you, as you know, none of us are living under a rock. Our culture has become what has been coined uh, a term has been coined. It's an outrage culture. Um, how many people here are on social media? Okay, by show of hands. Okay, yeah. So if you're on social media, you, you see this um, probably more. I, I have, I'm not on social media. Um, I was on social media, but I, I know what's going on um, depending on, on who you follow. But outrage culture is just, it's the cancel culture. It's the, hey, you, you made a wrong move and we're going to make you pay for it. It's, I want justice and I want justice now. And we're probably we're going to mock you and make you look silly to get justice. That's the kind of world that we all are inhabiting now. I would imagine for those who are older in the room, you can clearly see that things have changed, that it wasn't like this. Oh yeah, the human heart was sinful and people were angry 50, 60 years ago, but now it's coming out in just a cultural uh, shift of outrage. So how do we as believers, as Christians, handle that? How do we live in a culture that, where we say, hey, we, we value all human life, all people have dignity, where Jesus says that to even be angry at your brother and sister is violating the sixth commandment. How do we do that? Let's, let's dig in here. Back to Matthew 5, 21 and 22. We're going to read this text again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, so he's going to quote the, the commandment here, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. Okay. If we're all honest, we have to say, okay, guilty. I'm guilty. I've violated that. Um, have you been angry? unrighteously angry with, a, with, with someone. Yes, yes, you, you, you have. Um, have you insulted that person? Maybe not outwardly, but you probably have in your, in your mind. And Jesus says, you're, you're liable. You, you've broken the sixth commandment. You're liable to the council and uh, liable to the hell of fire. He's saying here that anger... Unrighteous anger, there is something called righteous anger, but we're talking about unrighteous anger towards a brother or sister is the same spirit as murder. Have you ever considered that? That is significant. David Paulson has a book called Good and Angry, and he's got, uh, I think it's maybe like a six-chapter book. And chapter two is entitled, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? That's the, the title to chapter two. There's one word in chapter two. Yes. His point is, we all struggle with anger. 
It's going to come out different. You may be someone in here and, and you act out your anger. You get hot, heated, harsh. You lose your temper. That's one way that anger comes out. Or you're, you're in here and maybe you stew on it for a long time and you, you hold it in, but and, and sooner or later it just comes out on someone that like they just bumped into you and, and, and it's spewing all over that person. Or maybe you're the passive-aggressive type and you just throw an underhanded comment here and there. Or another way that our anger can come out is we can gossip, right? We can, um, oh, that person really hurt me, so I'm going to... I'm going to go talk about them with other people, even the, the balances, even, even the score. So you and I are, are no different than the culture around us, this outrage culture. When we are offended and wronged or perceived that we've been offended and wronged, and often we have to admit, sometimes we think we've been offended and we haven't. Like that person that we are sure has done something against us, maybe didn't even know, and they were just going about their day, and we're so sure they were against us. But you and I, we want justice. We want justice. The human being cannot get away from the need and desire for justice. And when that comes to our own personal selves, we want it even more. When we are wronged, we want that person to know that they wronged us, and we want justice. Do you feel the need to respond every time that you are wronged? Do you feel that need to respond? See, the Apostle Paul in Romans says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Never avenge ourselves. That's hard to do. I struggle with that. When I'm wronged, I want to let that person know that they have wronged me. I want Vengeance, even if vengeance is just a word to let them know that, hey, you said this and I don't agree and I, I think this. Right? We all have that inclination in us. But Paul here is saying, um, strive to live at peace with people. Vengeance is God's. Leave it to God's. We don't have to be angry. We can know if there truly was a justice, um, that, if, if injustice was done, if it was truly done, we can know that God has it. He sees it. So I want to ask you a personal question this morning, not, not to answer out loud, answer it in your head, but who are you angry at? Who are you angry at? Who's your enemy in your, your mind, right? Like that word enemy, it, it, sometimes we, we can just kind of go... Um, Hollywood war movies and like, okay, yeah, I don't really have any enemies. You've got enemies. You've got people that, that you think um, 
are, are coming at you or you're upset at them. Who is your enemy? Who are you angry at? And here's another question. Why are you so mad at them? Why are you mad at them? If they've truly done something against you, the, the Lord will balance those scales. But you and I, we can't carry the vengeance. We can't carry the anger towards them. We need to forgive and turn the other cheek. Miroslav Volf says this. He's talking about forgiveness and why we struggle so much with forgiving as, as Christians. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. I'll say that again. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You and me, we're, we're all sinners. We've been forgiven an infinite debt. And often we can take that infinite debt that we've been forgiven and, and one person wrongs us in the slightest and we want to hold them accountable for that. Who do you need to forgive today? How can you turn the other cheek? See, Jesus says that this is so serious. If you have something against your brother and your sister, that don't even come into worship until you figure this out. Like, you're going to the altar to worship? Just wait, stop, reconcile with your brother, reconcile with your sister, then come worship. Then come to the altar. Matthew 5, 23, 26 so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. These are very strong words from Christ. Very strong words. Number one, don't, don't come to the table. Don't worship in, unless you've reconciled. And number two, he, to, to sum it up, come to terms quickly with your accuser. And he says, truly I say to you, you won't get out until you have paid the last penny. He is talking about an eternal jail. If you're going to be the type of person that doesn't forgive, that is angry at people, and that holds bitterness, you are essentially in prison. You are in prison. This is serious business, and he's relating it to the sixth commandment. In the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of the wrath of God, the anger of God, the anger of God, the righteous anger of God towards sinners and sin and evil. It's called often in the Old Testament the cup of wrath. I'll read two scriptures, Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup 
of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The prophet Isaiah says something similar. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So this idea is that that God has this, this cup, right? And, and it's filling up. It's, it's his wrath, his righteous anger and wrath towards sin, towards sinners, towards everything evil, everything good in the world. He doesn't take it lightly. He's got wrath. And, and the way it's dis- described in the Old Testament is it's a cup. And I would just ask you this morning, do you always feel the need to pour out your cup of wrath on others. We're going to come back to the cup here in in Christ, but I I would just ask, do you have a a cup of wrath where it's filling up, it's filling up, and then sooner or later, you got to pour that out on someone, on people you love, on your spouse, on your kids, on your friends? Are you a person who always feels the need to vent your anger is another way to say it. Jesus says again in in Matthew 18 of the seriousness of this. He talks about a a man who has been forgiven a a significant amount of money. And then he goes out and and he he chokes his debtors who owed him just a little money. He didn't extend the forgiveness that he received from his master to his subjects. And Jesus says this of that man. And we got to ask ourselves, are we that man? Are we that woman? Do we operate in our faith like this? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here it is right here, brothers and sisters. This is the seriousness of, of, of unforgiveness, of anger. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is how serious forgiveness is. Where we just read, um, hey, you're never going to get out, he said in Matthew 5, 23 to 26, until you've paid the last penny. You're going to be put in prison. And now here you have Jesus saying, hey, if you don't do this, if you receive my forgiveness, and then go out and hold everyone accountable for minuscule sins. The Father will do that with you, meaning you haven't really received Christ's forgiveness. You don't know his forgiveness if you can't forgive. If you insist on pouring out the cup of your wrath, there is another cup for you to drink. That is what the Bible teaches. If you continue to insist on pouring out your anger and your wrath towards people, the Bible has another cup for you to drink, and that is the cup of God's wrath. And you may be feeling convicted, and and we all should. I'm convicted as I'm preaching this. I'm convicted. This is good. We should be convicted. There's hope. If you can remember, a few weeks back, we talked about the multiple uses of God's law. 
And, and one of the biggest uses of his law, and we don't have time today to get into the scriptures, but one of the biggest uses of the law is to show you and me where we fall short and bring us to Christ. That, that's one of the biggest uses of the law. That's why Jesus, it's not in his condemnation that he's doing this. It's in his grace. He's saying, hey, you who, who think that you've got this command down, I haven't murdered, guess what? If you're even angry, you violated this command. In fact, at the end of, of that teaching, Jesus lands this bombshell. I don't know if you've ever read this or, or if this is stuck with you, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he ends it with, you must be perfect like my heavenly Father. That's it. He says, you, you have, th this is it. This is the teaching. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can attain that. This is where the grace of God should pour in, where we look and say, I've sinned, Lord. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. Last week, I, I quoted Keller, Tim Keller, uh, I'm going to quote him again because it, it, it's really, I think, crucial to, to our, our worship and our love for Christ. But he said something to the effect of, you and I are more sinful than we've ever thought. Yet, we are more loved and accepted by Christ than we could ever imagine. And these two, brothers and sisters, they go hand in hand. They rise and fall together. Your love for Jesus and your understanding of your sin. They, they rise and fall together. That's why every Sunday I'm going to spend a little time trying to push on all of us, saying, here's God's law. Guess what? We're here. We need Christ. We need his righteousness. There's a story in the, the Gospels about a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute. And there's a party going on at the, the, the Jews' house, the Pharisees, the, the, the really kind of elites, the, the spiritual elites. And she kind of storms into the party, this, this woman of the city. She probably had no hope. She was treated as an outcast. She had nothing, no social credibility, probably not much money, nothing. She storms into this party with all the elites of the day. And Jesus is at the party, and that's why she storms in. And she cries at his feet. And she kisses his feet. And her tears are so much that she washes his feet with her tears. She knew she was a sinner. The whole world knew she was a sinner. This woman was not self-righteous. She did not think that she had, had it um, all the, the boxes checked. She knew every day she was reminded that she was the scum of the earth. And Jesus rebukes the religious leaders who are judging her. And in Luke 7, 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, 
loves little. Jesus is not saying here that those who have committed more sins in their life love God more. That's not what he's saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. What he is saying is she recognizes the depth of her sin and she therefore loves Christ much. And those two, like I said, they rise and fall together. Do you want to worship better with more emotion, with more gusto? Realize that you have broken God's law and that you need a Savior. They rise and fall together. Back to the cup. As Jesus was about to to go to the cross, he was in the garden, and and many of you know this story. He knew what was ahead of him. And it wasn't just that Jesus was about to be killed and he was going to get nails through his hands and his feet. He knew that that cup of God's wrath was about to be poured out on him. He knew that was coming. And he was agonizing over the prospect of it. In Matthew 26, 37 to 42, this is Jesus in the garden. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is the cup of wrath. It's the same cup that Jeremiah and Isaiah were talking about. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Church, whatever conviction you felt, as Jesus raises the bar on on the sixth commandment, whatever conviction you felt about the commandment in general, Christ has drank the cup of the wrath that you deserved and I deserved. You are washed free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus clean. There's no cup of wrath for you. He drank it. He took it. He took it all down to the the dregs. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who has not violated any of the commandments, he has kept them perfectly, even in his own heart. He took the cup of the Father's wrath willingly. He drank it. He drank it down. So Jesus says, let us reconcile with our brothers and sisters before we come to the altar. Today we have the table, the altar. Um, And I would just say, in in your own heart, um, I'm going to invite you to come forward and and to take uh, the cup and the 
the, the bread, but um, if you're harboring any resentment towards anyone in, in your life, in, in you, maybe in your own family, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, um, maybe it's me, maybe it's other people in here, um, just church, I, let's be what Christ calls us to be, and, and that's people who forgive, who don't hold each other um, to the smallest little um, jot and tittle, who have wide, wide, um, just wide amounts of grace for each other, right? So I'm going to invite you at this time um, to come to the, to the table and to, to partake, and we're going to take of the, the cup and the bread. I would just say if you're not a believer, if, if you're in here and you're, you're kind of wrestling through, um, I don't know, Pastor, if I'm quite there yet, we would just say, hey, pass. This is for his people. This is for people um, who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. So I would just say at this point, come on up and, and partake, and we'll eat together. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about the moment of the cross 700-ish years before, and he said this of Christ, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, let's eat together and remember that the peace we have with God is only through Christ. about to drink, uh, Paul calls the cup, the cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians. We're about to drink from the cup of blessing, but we have to acknowledge that we can only drink from this cup of blessing because Christ drank from the cup of wrath. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we need your grace, your Holy Spirit, to forgive. Help us to be a grace-filled, forgiving people. Help us to lay down any um, anger and bitterness and resentment we have towards each other, towards those in our lives that, that we're close to. Help us to remember that the grace that we've received from you is infinitely more than anything anyone has done to us. Help us to be a light-filled, graceful, forgiving people. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.